Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Trinity Church in Carryville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, please visit our website, trinity901.com. This took place many years ago, you'll know by the reference. And I resonate with this story that was told to me when I was an assistant pastor at a church in Jackson, Mississippi. I am not excited nor thrilled when Vicki asked to go see a romantic comedy. I would prefer to watch an action movie or drama when we're on Netflix or Amazon and she starts looking for romantic comedies. I know that my heart is sinking and that I would prefer to see something with a lot of explosions and a lot of car wrecks and uh, an action hero. So this, this man that I know in Jackson told the story that he and his wife had gone to dinner and like me, he always wanted to go see action movies. And his wife looked at him and said, why don't we go to the movies this evening? And he thought, that's a great idea. Let's do it. What do you have in mind? And she told a little fib. She said, I hear there's this new movie out called The Wedding Singer. By day, he sings at weddings. But at night, he is an assassin. And he said, what an unusual title, but that sounds great. Let's go see it. And he said they sat through the previews and he was looking forward to this movie that he didn't know anything about. And then he realized the moment that Adam Sandler appeared on the screen that he had been hoodwinked. That this was not a movie about an assassin. That this was, as people often say, a rom-com. It was a romantic comedy. It was a love story that he had been trapped and he did think it was funny when the movie was over. So we've come to Ruth 3 and what you're going to see in this narrative, the story that you're going to see unfold by an author that we don't know who it is, we will see in this text a love story. It's not necessarily a romantic comedy. I don't really see any comedy in it, but it is a romantic love story. And you might think that Boaz and Ruth are the main characters of this love story. But I would ask you to hold on, wait for the surprise, because I think that the main character in this love story is God showing His love for His covenant people. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word, which is powerful and true and amazing and good, and it never fails. It leads us and it guides us and it helps us to see Jesus and him only. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the grace and the mercy that pours forth from each chapter and each verse. Thank you for the unified story that you tell of your love for your people in the Old Testament and the New. God, may Your Word change us today so that when we leave this place, we look more like our Redeemer. 
forgive the one who speaks. My sins are great. Set me aside as you speak this morning. Amen. There are two things that I want us to see in Ruth chapter 3, but before we focus on those two things, I want us to walk through this story, this love story, verse by verse or section by section. And so the first thing I want us to look at is verses 1 through 6. There has been a time period of three months that has passed since we saw an interaction between Boaz and Ruth in chapter 3. We know if we look ahead, if we sort of peek into chapter 4, we know that this is a time of desperation because Naomi is considering selling the land that she has inherited. They have returned from the land of Moab. The Lord is blessing Israel. This seems to be a sign of covenant renewal that God's people are obeying His covenant and He is blessing them. There is no longer famine in the land. They have returned, but apparently things are difficult and challenging for Naomi and Ruth. And that is more than likely due to the fact that they are widows in a culture where it was very difficult and very challenging, as I've said before, to not have a husband. Now it's an interesting insight into this. Ruth is told by Naomi to get ready to prepare herself, and to go to the threshing floor. Now, one of the things that we often do when we come to the Word of God, when we come to passages in Scripture, is we often see it through the lens of our culture. We have to remember that the Word of God was written a long time ago for a different group of people. And so it's important that we dive into the text and that we try to understand it as it would have been understood in the ancient Middle Eastern culture. And so we think about Naomi telling Ruth to prepare herself and it's almost like a mother-in-law telling a widowed daughter to get yourself ready, look nice, in order to go out on a date with another man. But that's really not what's happening here. That we know or we understand that the time of mourning was over. Dr. John Currid is a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, and he makes the point, and I think he's right, that this is for her like Samuel, excuse me, like David in Samuel, the book of Samuel, when he prepares himself to end his time of mourning for his son. That you see the same actions taking place here in this passage. It is time for you to move forward. It is time for you to take a new step. It is time for a transition in your life. Prepare yourself. As we look at this passage, as we read through chapter 3, we see a woman going at night to the threshing floor, to a man. And again, we can make the mistake of looking at this through the lens of the Hallmark Channel. We can make the mistake of looking at this through a romantic comedy. And we think that something is going to take place that might be inappropriate. Maybe not 
PG or PG-13, but R. But we've already been told. The author has dropped subtle hints that Ruth and Boaz are people of character. That Ruth is coming into an understanding who the covenant Lord is in Israel and how He blesses His people and how He cares for His people and how He takes care of His people. Ruth, according to our author, is someone that we should realize is a good person. And the same thing can be said thus far in what we have seen regarding Boaz. And so when we look at this story and we see her going to the threshing floor at night and we, we see Naomi telling her to get ready to prepare herself, we need to see this according to the clues and the hints that the author has given us. This is not something that is inappropriate. This is something that is good. This is something that is proper that Ruth is undertaking. People of honor. Uncovering his feet. What does this mean? What is going on in the Hebrew in this passage? Is this a subtle clue about something romantic? Is this a subtle clue about something that might be inappropriate? The answer, I believe, is no. That here is what Ruth is doing. She is desperate. She is a widow. She is in a difficult and challenging situation. She knows that Boaz, Naomi knows that Boaz is a redeemer in the line of their family. And so she is going and she is placing herself at his feet, which is reserved in Hebrew culture for the wife. She is submitting to Him. And she is humbly seeking redemption. Let's look at 7 through 13 as we come to the next section in our chapter. It mentions the word Mary. That Boaz ate and that he drank and that he goes to the threshing floor. Why does he go to the threshing floor? He's there to protect his assets. Again, the author has given us clues that he is a man of honor, that he's respectable, that he does the right thing. And so we shouldn't look at the Hebrew and understand this, that he went there drunk, that he went there out of control, that he went there in any kind of sinful fashion. What the Hebrew is implying is that he is content that he is satisfied. The Lord has been good to him. His harvest is good. He has eaten. He has drunk. He's in a good place. And he goes to rest. And then it also says that Ruth goes there softly. Softly. All that means is that she is there quite privately. She does not want to be seen. She does not want people to think that anything is happening that should not be happening. She has gone there very privately and very quietly in order to meet Boaz. Now, we're given a great clue by the author who has written this wonderful love story, this 
grand narrative. And we see this in verse 9 when Boaz wakes and he says, Who are you? It's the middle of the night. Can't see very well. He wakes up and he knows that there's a woman at his feet. So that tells you right there that nothing inappropriate has taken place. That we need to understand this passage as it is unfolding before our very eyes according to the context of their culture and what the author is trying to tell us, what the author is trying to explain to us regarding redemption and God's people, people of honor. Who are you? In verse 11 it says that Ruth is a worthy woman. I mean, the the author to me is giving us a story that we can understand that God is doing something good in order to redeem His people, to take care of His people, to provide for His people. Ultimately, He's giving us the bigger picture of what it means that He loves us and redeems us. Just an interesting side note. The Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, is arranged differently than our Bibles. And so in the Hebrew Bible, Proverbs is followed by Ruth. This is another internal clue. Proverbs is followed by Ruth. How does Proverbs end in chapter 31? The blessed woman. The worthy woman. The woman that God praises because of her commitment to Him and to her family. So isn't it interesting that Ruth immediately follows that? And here is a worthy woman, an outsider, a Moabite, who is being brought into the family of God and that the Lord is blessing. Yes, Ruth, you are a worthy woman. But we see a problem here in the last verse, 13 of this section, there is perhaps, maybe, hiding in the shadows, another Redeemer. Someone else in the line of Naomi, in the line of Elimelech, that could redeem them, that could save them. Now you need to understand that this is not exact. That the Redeemer law in ancient Israel, in the covenant with Moses did two things primarily. Number one, when a family member was sold themselves into slavery in order to pay off debt, the Redeemer was supposed to buy the family member back. Or, when a brother died, the other sibling was to take his widow and to marry her in order to protect her and provide for her to make sure that she was stable and that she had everything that she needed. Again, different time, different culture. So when you look at Naomi and you look at Ruth, it's not apples for apples. And so what we're seeing here with Boaz is not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. 
that as a kinsman redeemer in the family line of Elimelech, it is my role, it is my responsibility to make sure that widows do not suffer, they do not struggle, they are not hurting. Technically, I don't have to care for them, but it is the spirit of what the Lord is saying that God's people should do as they care for one another. We come to verses 14 through 18. He gives her a load of barley, a significant amount of barley. This is more than what he gave her several months prior. He is blessing Ruth. He is blessing Naomi. As I was reading through the commentaries and listening to scholars, this is similar or akin to how we give someone an engagement ring in our culture. I'm serious about what I'm going to do for you. Trust me. And then something very interesting. In verse 15, it says, she went into the city. Now, I am by no means a Hebrew scholar. But I do know who Hebrew scholars are similar to I stayed at the Holiday Inn Express. And several of them, including Dr. John Currid that I mentioned not too long ago, believe that in the original translation, that in the Hebrew, it doesn't say, as the ESV says, that, it, that she went into the city. They make the argument, and I think they're right, that he went into the city, which indicates his seriousness to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Where, where are his assets? His assets are in the field. And he's a farmer. And I know farmers, they very rarely leave their crops. They tend to their crops. They take care of their crops. They make sure that their crops are properly taken to the granary. But Boaz leaves his crops and takes off for the city. That's how serious he is about his role in redeeming these two ladies. And so that is, in short, chapter 3 of Ruth. I think that there are two characters that you see in this story, in this romantic story two figures that stand out. One is the protagonist and the other is the redeemer. The protagonist and the redeemer. Let's, let's examine the protagonist first. The main person in this story, I believe, is not Ruth. It's not Boaz. It is not Naomi. It is the Lord. And He is showing us in chapter 3 that He is in control. That He knows what He's doing. That He is in charge. A few years ago, Avery had to make something for school. It was, I believe it was brownies, and Vicky was away. And if you know anything about me, some of you know this, I do not like to cook. I do not enjoy being in the kitchen. I do not know what I'm doing. I can barely microwave popcorn. More often than not, I burn it. It's not my thing. But on this particular day, desperate times call for desperate measures. 
So I'm in the kitchen. I'm looking at the ingredients. Surely this can't be hard. Surely this can't be too challenging, too difficult. Avery was much younger, and she continually asked me, do you know what you're doing? And I kept telling her, I'm in charge, I'm in control, I know what I'm doing, trust me. Sweetie, this is not complicated. We have the ingredients. The instructions are on the back of the box. What can go wrong? I'm in control. Well, everything went wrong. I made it that night. I decided to bake it that morning so that she could take it to school fresh. I did not know that our oven cooks faster than what the instructions call for. I don't know why. I don't know why ovens do this. I asked Vicki, she said, you won't understand. But I burned those brownies or those cookies to a crisp. And Avery looked at me with her big brown eyes and she said, you're not in control and you don't know what you're doing. And she was right. I mean, yeah, she was right. It was true. But when we come to this story, we see the magnificent providence of a sovereign and holy God whose control is perfect every single time. B.B. Warfield was a theologian that lived many, many years ago. He was a professor at Princeton Seminary. And this is what he says about the providence of God. Hear this. In the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth... Each event falls with exact precision into its proper place in the unfolding of His divine plan. Nothing, however small, however strange, occurs without His ordering or without His particular fitness for its place in the working out of His purpose. And the end of all shall be the manifestation of His glory and the accumulation of His God is working out all events, good and bad, for His own praise, for His own glory, for the goodness of His people. We may not fully see it in this life, but we will understand it and see it when the kingdom comes in all its fullness. That is the glory of the coming of the kingdom that Jesus has come to say as our Redeemer, I am the way in which you enter into that glory and you enter into that kingdom and you understand who God is and why He has done everything that He has done, everything that unfolds, both good and bad, in your life. We see this through old examples in the Old Testament. We have to look no further than Abraham and Joseph and Moses, that God is a sovereign and loving God who has a plan for his people, and he is in control. Here from Psalm 33, 11 through 12, and 20 through 22, this is the psalmist that many scholars believe is King David, talking about what it means that we belong to God, and he is in control of all things. So we'll begin with 11 and 12, then we'll jump to 20 and 22. This is Psalm 33. But the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. What joy for the nation whose God is the Lord, whose people He has chosen as His inheritance. Now, we jump to verse 20. We put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. 
In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. Let Your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in You alone. So like Abraham and like Joseph and like Moses, we trust in the Lord. His providence is perfect. His plan is grand. He knows what is best for His people. And sometimes that is difficult and challenging events that take place in our life. But His plans stand firm forever. He knows what He's doing. Verse 12, it is the joy for the nation. Now we have to understand that in light of the New Testament. The nation means God's people, both Jewish and Gentile, around the world. It is a joy for us that we have a God that we can trust in. We are His inheritance. So when things that are difficult and things that are bad happen according to God's plan, all we have to do is remember that if we are His inheritance, if we are His children, then somehow, some way, He means this for good. And we trust. And we put our hope in Him because He is our help and He is our shield. His plan is perfect because He is our shield. He's taking care of us. We may not understand it, He is taking care of us. Our hearts should rejoice. We trust in His holy name. The holy name of a God who cares for His people and is guiding us every single step of the way. Verse 22, His unfailing love surrounds us. This is hard. This is difficult. This is challenging. I don't understand it. It's mysterious. Why is this happening to me? Where are you, Lord? The psalmist says, no, no, no. His unfailing love surrounds you. His unfailing love surrounds you. And your hope, even at night, at the threshing floor, in a desperate situation, is in God alone. The love of our God, our Heavenly Father, He is the protagonist in this story. And then secondly, we see the Redeemer. We see our Redeemer. Verse 17, Boaz says, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Love the play on words here. We talked about two weeks ago how the author is using very unique clues and incredible wordage to give us insight into the story, including, if you will remember, Elimelech's name. My God is my king. And yet he's fleeing to Moab. Because he doesn't believe that his God is going to deliver his people. And we see it again right here. You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. In the Hebrew, this is the same word as what Naomi said in Ruth chapter 1, verses 21. Oh, the Lord has brought me back empty. And as you will remember as we talked about chapter 1, it was foolhearted of Naomi to blame the Lord. She and her husband, they made the decision 
to leave the presence of their covenant Lord, to leave Bethlehem, to leave the land of promise and go to the foreign nation, to the Moabites, who had been a curse to the nation of Israel in order to find greener grass on the other side of the fence. They abandoned their God. And then she had the audacity to return and say, look what the Lord has done to me. And so the author is giving us this subtle clue, in some sense humorous if you will, so maybe it is a little bit of a romantic comedy, coming back empty-handed. You will not, says Boaz to Naomi, who says the Lord brought me back empty-handed. Great play on words. And what you see here is Boaz being the redeemer of Ruth, a worthy woman, and to Naomi who has been less than a worthy woman. Boaz is being the redeemer for a foreigner who has come from the outside in. He is being the redeemer to one who has not honored the Lord. He is being a redeemer to the one who has second-guessed the Lord. He is being the redeemer to the one who has said untrue things about the covenant God of Israel. So in Boaz, who do we see? Well, Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. And King David is the grand, the adopted grandfather many generations later of the Lord Jesus, the Redeemer, the Messiah, who comes out of Bethlehem in order to save His people. So as we look at Boaz, we see Jesus. Because He comes to us in our sin, in our rebellion, as those who are on the outside, those that have sinned against Him, those that want nothing to do with Him, those that that like Naomi, say the wrong things. Those that have a heart that does not trust in the goodness and the mercy and the grace of our covenant Lord. We are Ruth and we are Naomi. We need redemption. We need to be saved. In fact, our situation is far more desperate than their situation. Because the Word of God tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us, that we are dead in our sins. We want nothing to do with God. Stay away from me. I don't want your mercy. I don't want your grace. I don't want your sacrificial love. I want to be my own God. And I am spiritually dead. And the Lord comes to us And He gives us more barley and more grain than we can ever possibly imagine through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He blesses us beyond what we deserve or can imagine. That is who God is, and that is who Jesus is, and that is what He does for us. He does not leave His people empty-handed. Take that to heart. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank You for this love story that reminds us of Your love for us and Jesus' love for us. We don't deserve it. And so we have come to this place at this hour 
to praise you and honor you and to give you all the glory for what you have done for us. And we rejoice that Ruth reminds us of all of these truths, of your sovereignty, of your providence, and your redemption. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.